to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Good morning. He is risen. Now listen, a week ago, I'm in the hospital with pneumonia. Seriously. Okay? So your prayers were felt. He is risen. Good, good. Amen. Amen. A woman went to a funeral of a deceased friend and heard a poem that she absolutely loved. It went like this. Here lies the body of old man Pease, buried beneath the flowers and trees. But Pease ain't here, just the pod. Pease shucked out and went to God. When her husband of 50 years passed, she thought that it would be the perfect poem to recite at his funeral. She stood up and began the poem, but as she looked out at the crowd, she began to get nervous, and it came out like this. Here lies the body of old man Pease, buried beneath the flowers and trees. But Pease ain't here, just a shell. <laughs> One more. A tombstone epitaph reads, Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. A passerby read those words underneath and scratched this response. To follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. <laughs> As this little wit implies, it's important and to be careful who we follow. Amen? Well, a week ago I was in a bed, so you can say I have risen from my bed. So that's a good thing. It's good to be here. It's good to see you all. God bless you. You know, uh, I guess I, because I was in the hospital, I get the short straw, and I get to teach on death. How cool is that, huh? We don't want to die yet. Yet this was the main reason Jesus was born. Think about that. His main reason, his main purpose in being born was to die. Is that crazy? You and I were made to live forever. Adam and Eve was made to live forever. But it had to happen. It had to take place, his death. Remember, Jesus was not a martyr or a victim. He was a substitute for you and for me. In the first two chapters of Genesis, it talks about all God's creation. Chapter 3 talks about the temptation and the death of the human race. God sets standards. You and I go against those standards, and that's called sin. And the wages of sin is death, both spiritually and physically. 
Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is a prophecy. It's a serpent's curse about the crushing the head of the serpent and the crushing the heel. As a result of a virgin birth, there would be a death blow to the serpent, the devil, Satan himself. In Genesis 3, the ground was cursed. Humans were cursed. Pain, sorrow. We will return to the dust of the earth. In Genesis 3.21, it talks about the first shedding of blood. God provided tunics of skin for Adam and Eve to cover. Remember, they initially covered themselves with fig leaves. It was their way to cover their sin, but it wasn't acceptable. Animals, blood had to be shed. And by them taking the tunics of skin, they accepted God's way of salvation. Blood had to be shed. In Leviticus 17, it talks about there must be a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. We see in Genesis 4, the first physical murder where Cain killed his brother Abel. Throughout Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, we see the death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus. It's written throughout Scripture. It's there for any person to see. In Genesis 5, there's an amazing prophecy. In the genealogy of Adam through Noah, God always rewards those who diligently seek him. If you seek him, you will find him when you seek him with your whole heart. In the genealogy in the Old Testament, it talks about Adam, Seth, Enoch, Kenan, Malael, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Names that some of you have heard. You probably heard some of them. You might not have heard all of them. But each of those words means something very significant that God put in the heart of Moses to write this down back in Genesis. Adam's name means man. Seth's name means appointed. Enosh's name means mortal. Kenan's name means sorrow. Mahel's name means the blessed God. Jared's name means shall come down. Enoch's name means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech is the despairing. And Noah's name means rest or comfort. It's really remarkable when you put that all together because it reads basically like this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Everybody, that's in Genesis 5. That is not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and It is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it was in Genesis 5 that God was revealing to the world his plan of salvation after man messed it up. After you and I fell, the human condition... God said, I got it. Guys, girls, I have it. In his death is our life. Guys, in his death is our life. Good Friday, the, one of the greatest, greatest days ever in the history of mankind. We don't stand a chance without Good Friday and the death of our Savior. Here we see the, Genesis, uh, the gospel hid in Genesis 
As we look through the Old Testament, we will see in the sacrificial system on the first Passover, a lamb had to be killed and its blood put on the doorpost and the lentil, forming a cross of blood. And anyone whose house was covered by the blood, the angel of death would pass over that house. It didn't matter who was in the house. Get it? didn't matter who was in the house. It were those who believed in the blood that was put on the doorpost and the lentil of the house. It could have been a Jew. It could have been a Gentile that was in that house. They were covered in the blood. That's the key. Are you covered in the blood of Jesus Christ? Psalm 22 talks about the crucifixion. It's amazing because it was written 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified and before crucifixion was a type of capital punishment. There are many examples, but this is a big one, Psalm 22. That Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced through. That the Messiah's bones would not be broken. And a person's legs were usually broken in crucifixion to help speed up death. That the Messiah would be rejected. That the Messiah would be killed for the sins of the people. It talks about in Isaiah 53, another big prophetical book. That the Messiah would be silent in front of his accusers. That the Messiah would be with criminals in his death. You know, Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever walked this earth to fulfill all those prophecies. Forget about it. Nobody else could fulfill any one of those prophecies, yet alone hundreds of them. And our Jesus did that. Jesus predicted his own death in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew 21... It says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Remember, Jesus was with these guys. He talked to them about his death, his life, his resurrection. But it didn't sink in. It didn't penetrate from their head to their heart. We have the scriptures available to us all the time. But do we take it in? Do we realize the treasure we have from Genesis to Revelation? Do we take care and hold that treasure close to our hearts? And it's not just in our head, but it's penetrated deep into our hearts. In Jerusalem, during the time of Jesus, during the Passover week, there were about 250,000 lambs that were slain. They were being sacrificed. There were approximately 3 million Jews in Jerusalem. Each lamb slain could represent, represent up to 10 people. 
The historian Josephus said blood flowed from the temple down the mount and flowed down in the Kidron Valley. It was like a river of blood just flowing through during the Passover time. Lambs had to be inspected and be without any blemishes. As Passover drew closer, the actual day of Passover drew closer, the supernatural forces of darkness were in high gear, and the men of the earth who swore allegiance to these supernatural forces of darkness were doing their bidding. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was being inspected illegally during this same time. He was being hit, punched, and as we know, crucified. The Bible says in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. It went right over all the religious leaders' heads. The ones who memorized all five books of the Torah. They had the education, but they didn't have the salvation. They had the knowledge, but they didn't let it penetrate their heart. The very ones that the scriptures talked about was right in front of them. The cross of Christ won for you and me the victory that we could never have won for ourselves. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross in Colossians 2.15. The cross of Christ won for us the victory that we could never have won for ourselves. On the cross, God piled our sins on Jesus and he bore the punishment due us. In his death, Jesus took upon himself the curse introduced by Adam. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse that you and I took on ourselves through sin, he took on himself on the cross for every man, woman, teenager, boy, and girl. He became the substitute for you and me. He transferred the sins from us to Him so that you and I would not have to die an eternal death because of not trusting in Him. With the death of Christ, our sins become powerless to rule over us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to us to live a life that we could not live without his precious Holy Spirit indwelling in us. The Christian life is impossible to live without Jesus Christ living in us. Amen? It can't be done. It's not by our works. It's a gift of God that he's given us. And it's by faith in the risen Savior, that we can live a life to overcome sin and depravity and destruction and all that behavior that He delivered us from. With the death of Christ, our sins become powerless to rule over us. By His death, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Bang! He's dead. Satan has no rule over us unless we let him. You and I have a choice in Christ. If you're here today and you haven't received him and you'll have that opportunity, you're lost in your sins. You do not stand a chance. You can't make it on your own. Believe me, you can't. can't be done. 
By his death, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. He condemned Satan and crushed the head of the serpent. His heel, Jesus' heel, was bruised. But if you know you have a bruised heel, usually bounce back from that. Maybe you'll have a limp. But boy, if you have a crushed head, good luck, guys. Not going to go far with that one. Without the sacrificial death of Christ, we would still be in our sins. Unforgiven, unredeemed, unsaved, and unloved. The cross of Christ is vital to our salvation and was thus the main theme of the apostles' teaching. And now I'm going to ask Pastor Paul to come up with the death or the burial, right? Pastor Paul, the burial. Good morning. Now, Pastor Vinny said he thinks he he drew the short straw. But uh, I I think I claim that. Where is he? I I claim that. I'm going to preach a message about an aspect of the three days that is usually not the subject of sermons. There's not very many well-known verses that we might commit to memory from this account. Nothing that would necessarily inspire us or even build us up in our faith unless we really dig in deep and see what this aspect of the three days really means. Usually we concentrate on the death of Christ on the cross, and so well we do. And we certainly give a lot of attention to the resurrection, which is why we're here today celebrating Jesus' victory over death. But the burial seems to be more of a kind of a basic, mundane necessity in between two well-known and maybe you would consider miraculous events. But I believe that the burial has merit on its own. There's significance in the burial of Christ as much as the other two events surrounding it. And there's significance to confirm that Jesus was who he said he was. The one that was long awaited for. The Messiah. The anointed one of God. The one that was expected to come to save the world. And it's interesting, each of the four Gospels mention the burial of Christ, but approach it from a slightly different perspective. But all of them mention one man, specifically Joseph of Arimathea, when it has to come to the burial of Jesus. Matthew says in 2757, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So Matthew here mentions that Joseph was a rich man, and he was also a disciple of Jesus. Mark says in Mark 15, verses 42 and 43, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, 
went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You know, Mark is usually a man of few words. His gospel is short. But he elaborates on this to give us a little bit more texture. Luke does the same thing. And Luke's gospel, Luke 23, verses 50 to 51, says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So we put those things together, and we see that he was a rich man, He was a disciple of Jesus, which meant that he was a follower of Christ. But adding to the fact of that was he was a council member. What did that mean? Well, he was a religious leader. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 religious leaders that would make decisions, religious decisions for the people. And they also composed the actual court system that would try people under religious law. These are the guys that sentenced Jesus to death. These 70 religious leaders, of which Joseph was a member. But look what it says here in verse 51. He had not consented to their decision. So I don't know if they had a vote and majority ruled about whether to put Jesus to death or not, or if he secretly just dissented from voting, but he did not consent to the decision of the, of the elders. And it also mentions that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, that's an interesting phrase. We're waiting for the kingdom of God. We're waiting for Jesus to come again in glory, to come again to set things right. But we have the perspective of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everything that that's, surrounds that. We have all of the scriptures to show us that, that tell us that. But at that time, they didn't. They had the Old Testament, but they were, he, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. I believe that at that time, there were many Jews waiting for the kingdom of God, knowing the prophecies that were told about the foretelling and the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, Daniel predicted the exact time that Jesus would come, that the Messiah would come. The prophet Micah tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Bible scholars will tell us that there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that only Jesus could fulfill, which he did. And it was only the week before, as they all witnessed the triumphant entry into Jerusalem that was prophesied hundreds of years before in Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9.9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to to you. Your king is coming to you. The kingdom of God came. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey hundreds of years before the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday when he did ride a donkey in. The kingdom of God that they were waiting for was right before their eyes. But it wasn't as many had expected. 
Many expected the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome and set the people free from the oppression. But Jesus came to do much more than that. Much greater things. It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Save sinners. Pastor Vinny said his purpose of being born was to die. His purpose was to save us from our sin. The only way he could do that was to go to his death on a cross. The Apostle John adds more color to the story of the burial of Jesus. And he mentions another man who you probably have heard of in the Bible called Nicodemus. And in John 19, verses 38 to 40, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So Joseph and Nicodemus... Both came secretly. They were secret disciples of Christ. Why were they secret disciples of Christ? Well, they were religious leaders at that time. This is that same Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night asking questions about salvation in John chapter 3, about being born again. But he risked his reputation coming to Jesus. And both Joseph and Nicodemus disagreed with the decision to sentence Jesus to death. They both put their reputations and even their lives at risk when they went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. But their role in that was more significant than they even realized. Isaiah 53 9 tells us, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, that awesome prophetic chapter in the Bible, foretelling in great detail the suffering of Jesus Christ, foretells his burial in a rich man's tomb, Now, this was, again, more evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. You see, in that day, common criminals were not buried in a tomb. Most of the time, they were buried in a mass grave. Sometimes, they were actually buried in the city dump in Jerusalem, Gehenna, which had a perpetual fire burning to burn Household trash, garbage, and many times the bodies of criminals who were given the death penalty. See, Jesus normally would have his grave with the wicked. He, had, he was not rich. He had no prominence to, de, to demand a, a tomb 
But somehow, he fulfilled prophecy and wound up in a rich man's tomb. And being anointed with over a hundred pounds of spices, again, very costly at that time, was not something for the common man. Joseph and Nicodemus were integral to the fulfillment of that prophecy. They risked life and reputation to show their devotion to Jesus. Are we willing to do the same? That question has to come up. Are we willing to risk life and reputation to be a disciple, a a devoted follower of Christ? Unless we think that the burial was in and of itself the end of this aspect of the three days, something greater was happening there. Again, something that we may not really understand or realize all the time. While that stone was rolled over the entrance to the tomb, which was really like a cave, Jesus was not just lying in some type of semi-comatose state, waiting for Sunday so he could rise from the dead. He actually was at work. His body remained in the grave, but his spirit was at work. Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 tells us, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? What did Jesus do in the lower parts of the earth? Well, this is the subject of some debate among Bible scholars, and that's okay. But one theory puts it this way. He descended into Hades, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol, or a place of the dead. Hades is this two-compartment temporary holding place that's separated by a great chasm. Now, both unbelievers and believers go into Hades, but they're separated into two compartments. Remember the story about the rich man and Lazarus, right? One went to one compartment, one went to another compartment, and there was a great chasm separating the two. Although Lazarus would have reached over to, to quench the burning and the suffering and the torment of the rich man, he couldn't. And the rich man begged for that. Those who put their trust in Jesus' sacrifice go to the blessing side of Hades. Those who refuse to do so during their life go to the judgment side. So let's say Jesus descended to the side of blessing or Abraham's bosom as it's called in in Luke 16 in order to declare victory over sin and death. This is a place of peace. This is a place of comfort. But let's say he also went to the place of judgment, also to proclaim his victory over sin and death. Now, the judgment side of Hades is a place of torment. See, if Jesus went to the the lower parts, he did it to proclaim his victory. He did it to declare that he has overcome man's greatest enemy, and that is death. He didn't go to receive additional punishment for sins, as some may speculate. That would make his crucifixion actually insufficient to pay the penalty. But remember one of Jesus' last proclamations from the cross. He said, tetelestai in the Greek. It is finished. 
Tetelestai. It's an accounting term. It means paid in full. That wasn't a cry of termination, but one of triumph over death. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus proclaimed victory to the unbelievers and to the believers, but they received the same message, but process it very differently. Isn't that the same for us? We hear the message, and we may believe or we may not believe, but the message doesn't change. See, the message is the message of the cross. For those who are perishing, it's foolishness. For those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It can mean different things depending on your perspective. For those who refuse to believe, the message is a message of death. It's a fairy tale. Maybe it's foolishness. Maybe good for you, but not good for me. But for those who do believe, whose eyes have been opened, the Bible tells us it is the power of God unto salvation. The question today is, which one are you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would just continue to show us hope that is in what you've done on the cross and rising from the dead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. And yes, we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I've been coming up here for 20 years sharing various proofs of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it never gets old. So it's actually the same for me, the same message every year for 20 years, and it never gets old. How could it? How could it? Actually, did you know that even prior to Jesus coming, in the Old Testament, we find instances of, of the miracle of resurrection. It's pretty interesting. It's a little bit different, but it's in there. And when we look out at this world that seems to have lost its way, well, the hope we have in Jesus only shines brighter in contrast to this lost world. Even the Apostle Paul reflects on worldly philosophy at the time that we still hear today in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, well, if the dead do not rise, then let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And you hear people say that, right? If they don't know the truth of the resurrection. So we looked at these three parts. Pastor Paul, Pastor Vinny shared with us his death, his burial, and I'm here to share with you the resurrection. It's synonymous with hope, proof, truth, faith, promises kept. And while the world seems to be becoming more and more hopeless and all the metrics pointing to the indicators in the psychological and sociological realm, we know that it's the true hope in our Savior that is the solution. And we want everybody to have that. And if you're visiting, if you're visiting, well, and you don't know the Lord yet, that is why we can be so annoying about our faith. It's because we love you. <laughs> so if you're annoyed by somebody who's sitting next to you and they're bugging you, it's because they love you. We want you to have the same hope that we have. You know, there was a recent New York Times op-ed. <laughs> you're shaking your head, you know. 
a few days ago that told us we should encouraging the world to get rid of God. Yeah, it's, it's in there. This is what's happening. The world, right, the power structure is falling right into Bible prophecy. Sadly, I did a little research on the person who wrote it, and they had a, a bad experience with a very strict religious upbringing. They didn't have a bad experience with the Lord. They had a bad experience with a strict religious upbringing, and there is a difference. We preach relationship with the Savior, relationship with God. We don't preach religion. There's a difference. And I know that every year on Christmas and Resurrection Sunday, I'm always going to have visitors. So I sort of have this tradition, if you've been coming for 20 years or less, is that I use proofs, not just rhetoric, not just feel-good platitudes. The world can do that. But how do we know? See, I can't help it. For 25 years, I was an investigator. So as much as I try to come up here every year and just share nice words, I have to put proof in. Some years it's natural sciences, some it's paleography, some it's archaeology, some it's actually testimonies from non-believers attesting to the existence of Jesus and the fact that he did what they called magic because they didn't understand miracles. They didn't understand God the Son. So today I'm going to focus briefly on history and a little bit of archaeological evidence which many have never heard of. And then I'm going to use the scripture to explain secular history, what happened the scripture is going to give us the reason behind it. So, here I, some of you are going to say, I didn't come here for a history lesson. There were, in the first and second centuries, you can look this up when you go home, right? Encyclopedia, go online. There were three Roman Jewish wars. And there were messianic figures in, the, in these wars. The first one was A.D. 66 through A.D. 70 where the only thing that's left is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, where the Romans kind of pretty much destroyed the entire temple and left very little bit of the city and today their archaeological uh, wonders. So messianic figures rose up, said, I'm the Messiah. A lot of people did back then. You just don't hear about it. They rose up. They were killed, faded into history. No religion, no denomination, no followers today, no legacy. And then we have Jesus so let me just go into one, and I'm just going to ask you if you've ever heard of this person. 115 A.D., after Christianity was well-established but persecuted, rose up a man. Tell me, raise your hand if you've heard of him. His name is Lucius Andreas. Anybody heard of him? Wow, one person in the whole place. That's pretty amazing. That's why I bring this stuff up. Because if you really want to find the proof of the resurrection, you can so I'm doing it through history. So this guy rose up, rebelled against Rome. He was put down by the Roman Empire. His followers killed. No religion, no denomination, no followers of Lucius Andreas today. And 99% of you have not even heard of the guy. 132 AD, some of you might have heard of him. I've used him in my sermons before. His name, he rose up. His name was Simon Bar Kokhba, another messianic figure. How many of you heard of Simon Bar Kokhba? Okay, a little bit more. Um, rose up, rebelled against Rome, was put down, followers killed. No Bar Kokhba religion, no denomination, no followers of Bar Kokhba today. Now remember, there was dozens of these people who rose up, were put down, and no one's ever heard of them. Well, in roughly 33 AD, before these two guys, somebody else rose up, claiming to be the Messiah. Did miracles, affected a lot of people. Rome killed him. This other messianic figure, his name was Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. 
persecuted his followers. They went an extra step that they did it with these other two guys. They actually made it illegal by Roman law, illegal to spread this faith of they called the way of Jesus Christ. However, you see the stories. You know who Nero is. You see some of these from history, right? We all studied a little bit of history. Colosseums, throw the Christians in there. Throw their kids in there, right? Nero burned people alive. Horrible things. And they couldn't stop Christianity. But that following should have gone the way of Lucius, Andreas, and Barcopa. Here, let me, let, me, let me sweeten the pot a little bit. Is that Barcopa and Lucius had armies, uh, Bar Kokhba had his own coins minted. You can find these, right? Archaeological digs. They'll show you pictures of them, pictures taken. This guy thought he was going to take over Rome. They actually took land from Rome. These are all things that Jesus didn't have. And you have close to a billion adherents to Jesus Christ today. Why is that? Because a simple study of, a simple extrapolation of empirical evidence will tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. And... In those 40 days between the resurrection, he raises, he's raised from the dead. A lot of Christians don't know this. And his actual ascension into heaven, he was on the earth for 40 days in his perfected body after he rose. He was teaching, he was reassuring his followers and solidifying them for the persecution that would come. Well, some people have asked me, well, isn't it possible? There are groups today that say, well, there's, there was his name, David Koresh and some of these other guys and some of these groups. Oh, yeah, he's the Messiah today. It's impossible. Because even in the Old Testament, three prophecies, Genesis 49.10, Haggai 2.7 and 8, and all of Daniel chapter 9 tell us that the Messiah had to come in the first century. There was a window of opportunity where God the Son came to the earth, took the form of a man, and then he ascends into heaven. Small sliver of human history. It's come and it's gone. Nobody else can fulfill that. Here, let me, let me put some more onto this, is that the, some of the religious leaders didn't know what to do. They didn't want to believe in Jesus because they wanted a conquering Messiah. But then the other Messiah figures were put down by Rome, and they had a dilemma. Rabbi Rachman, very popular rabbi, very well respected in the Jewish Talmud, said, quote, Woe to us, the Messiah has not come. So because they refused to believe in the true Messiah, they couldn't believe in the guys that were put down, they came to the conclusion that God didn't keep his promises. Let me tell you something. That's not a God that I want to follow. So what was Jesus doing in those 40 days on earth after he was resurrected? This history will all make sense once I tell you what he was doing. Well, the Bible tells us in the gospel accounts, uh, all four of them, he appeared to the women followers, then he appeared to the men followers. He also appeared to two of his followers on the way to Emmaus in Luke 24. He appeared to the apostles while they went back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee in John 21. He appeared to 11 apostles in Jerusalem in Luke 24. And Jesus' last bodily appearance to his followers prior to ascending to heaven, into heaven from the Mount of Olives, 40 days after his resurrection, is in Acts chapter 1. Right? Mentioned a few different books. In Acts chapter 9, Christ, after he ascends, appears to Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there was a, an instance where Jesus addressed a crowd of over 500 people at one time. So there's your answer. So there's your answer. Why did Christianity stand 
Why wouldn't Christians just go along to get along? Why wouldn't they just bow down and worship the emperor? Just make life easy for you and your kids. Because they had an experience with the risen Savior. That's your answer. Bar Kokhba and Lucius Andreas, they're both in their tombs. But the Messiah, Jesus, the real one, he is risen. And let me say this. Let me just throw this one more thing in and then I'm going to close because I can't help myself. Is that... <laughs> I just thought, listen, I just, it's just in my blood. I've always been a prove-it-to-me guy. It took me a while to come to the faith because I wanted to go through all. I bought all the religious books. I read them. I'm like, if I'm going to follow something, it better be the truth. It just was who I am as far as an investigator. So let me pr- play the role of the polemic here. This time of year, we hear, we hear some of these lame theories about why Jesus wasn't the Messiah. So the first one is Jesus' disciples stole his body after he died. So they said they hyped it up and said, oh, he's risen. Here's a problem. Number one, Jesus was, if you read secular history, I love to win people to the truth of Christ through secular sources. I don't, I don't have to use the Bible. There's enough out there. If you read secular history, you'll know that Rome and the religious system were strange bedfellows because they were usually at odds because Jesus turned both of them on their heads. He was a problem politically to both of those groups. So they were very happy that he was going to be crucified, and they were both invested in disciples not stealing the body because they knew what a problem they'd have on their hands. But no matter what they did, securing a guard, etc., he still rose from the dead. They couldn't stop it. Two, here's another thing. Disciples stole the body. Would you allow yourself and your family to be tortured by the Romans or anybody else if you just heard a rumor that Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, look, it's an empty tomb. Nobody would. The empty tomb coupled with an experience with the risen Christ and or the Holy Spirit solidified the fact that they knew that this life was temporary. So they went forward with all of these things and, you know, they tried to live and they tried to run but they were not going to worship the Caesars because they knew that there was a God and he did rise from the dead. Third reason why it's a silly, um, and again, you hear this a lot, a ridiculous uh, theory is if you were the followers and you knew that there's his body, he didn't rise, and you knew that if you took his body out of the tomb and hid it somewhere, and after that you made this big false claim that Jesus rose from the dead, You were putting yourself, your loved ones, your kids, and your family in peril of death because the Romans already talked about persecuting Christians. So why would you do that? That would be the dumbest hoax anybody would ever pull. And it would be at the expense of yourself, your wife, your spouse, and your family. Makes no sense at all. The truth is that Jesus did rise. Why is it that officials in the Roman government and the religious system started becoming believers in Christ? These are facts of history because they knew that what they were a part of was only temporary. They had an experience with the risen Christ and or the Holy Spirit. So, okay, that's that's enough for my my proofs. Um, Join me each year, and I I use some other metrics to... uh, in the natural sciences to do this, but today it's history. I don't want to keep you here for three hours. Some of you have hams in the oven, so I'm going to close it with this. (laughs) Let me say this. If we're doing it right, 
what we're trying to teach people and show people is a relationship with the Lord. Not about organized religion, denomination, Calvary Chapel, this church, or anything else. Let me just leave you with this as well. I can show you all the incontrovertible proof in the world about Jesus, but if your heart is hard, you see this today, right? We see this with big tech. We see it with social media. People believe what they want to believe. So the truth is kind of, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's a fine thing that's not being used that much anymore because people just want to go with their own narrative. You can do that in the spiritual realm too, or you can open your heart to the truth. So I just leave you, I said that three times, leave you with this. Go in peace, knowing that whatever happens here in this world, whether it's World War III, whether it's famine, whether it's rising prices, Christ offers you an amazing eternity. And you are going to be there a lot longer than the time we ever spend on this earth. Listen, to me, it was a memory. I was in my 20s. Um, I think I blinked, and somehow I ended up in my 50s. Uh, life goes pretty quickly, trust me. It's something about there's a certain age where the, the days seem to be ticking quicker than when you're young, where it seems like it's going to last forever. But Christ offers us an amazing eternity, and that's the amazing message of hope that we need to be sharing with the unsaved world and unbelievers. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.